Gospels. We've been talking about the book of John. Everybody familiar with this one? It's the most recent gospel. I say that because the other three gospels, all written roughly around the same time. John comes maybe 20, 30, some scholars even think maybe 40 years later. Uh, Because it does, John, the writer of this gospel, assumes that you know things, assumes that you've kind of read the other ones and and he can kind of just jump into where he jumps into. Uh, And so we've been in this first chapter, a great chapter, uh, a great way to start the story of Jesus. We know the reason that John wrote his gospel because he gave it to us in the very end of this book. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, it says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. John's like, I ran out of paper. Not really. The Holy Spirit only told him to write down the ones that he did. Uh, But uh, these that I have written are written so that you, us, his readers, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's why he writes. He writes so that those who initially received his letter and those of us who are hanging out in it right now, could know who Jesus was, choose to believe in him, and having chosen to believe in him, have life being lived or living our lives in his name or in in line with what he says for us to do. He, He hopes essentially to convince people to become disciples. We talk a ton about that around here. In fact, we kind of fashioned our whole mission around this word disciple. Uh, We say it like this, if you know it, say it with me. Uh, We exist to glorify God by what? Being disciples who make disciples. We live to glorify God by being disciples who make disciples. Uh, I think as as often the case in any preach, uh, it's good for us to make sure we're clear on our terms. When I say disciple, what do you think of? In fact, here's what I want you to do. If you don't want to talk to anybody, entirely you're right. It's COVID. You don't even have to look at people. Anyway, uh, but if you're willing to, you know, speak to someone near you or next to you, or if you just want to have an internal conversation, answer this question. What is a disciple? Go. Talk amongst yourselves. What's a disciple? It's always fun to look around the room, see who's talking to themselves. All right, it's enough time. Throw out some uh, offerings here. When I say disciple, you say follower. Who said follower? We're going to get to that one. Say again? Student. I love that one. We're going to get to that one in just a second. Imitator. Thank you, ma'am. Yeah. Copycat. That's good. I love all those. I like to think sometimes of things in terms of what they're not. Has anybody ever done that? Well, it's certainly not this. It's like multiple choice. Who's, who's good at the multiple choice test? I got all the way through college just knowing what something wasn't, right? Uh, here's, here's something I know about uh, discipleship or being a disciple. It's not the same as being a fan. Now, now, we're all, no, maybe not all of us. Many of us will be watching this game tonight and hopeful. I can actually see several of you and your rooting interests as you wear them right now. Uh, fandom is great. Isn't it fun to have something to root for? A team to, you know, uh, you know hope they win. It's a great thing. But uh, I think a lot of times in the modern church, people associate discipleship with fandom. I'm a fan of Jesus. Pro-Jesus. Go, Jesus, go. We know the cheers. Uh, we understand, you know, that he's a good thing, and we want to be behind him, and we certainly want to be on the winning team, and... And so we kind of 
Become fans of Jesus. But discipleship goes beyond fandom. Fandom's part of it. I won't deny that there's parallels. But, but discipleship goes beyond it. In fact, you've probably heard this before, but I talk all the time about how the church is not meant to be in the stands just kind of watching and cheering on our Savior. The church is meant to be in the game with him, in life with him. It goes beyond just kind of, you know, uh, stapling him to our side once a week on a Sunday, wearing his jersey, as it were, as we uh, attend his service. It goes into all of life. If we're doing it right, being a disciple of Jesus changes every aspect of our life, influences every office that we inhabit, spouses, parents, kids, coworkers, friends. It shapes us. Hmm. Webster says that it's a fan, or excuse me, a disciple is someone who accepts and assists in spreading the doctrines of another. Sounds like Webster would say that, right? Uh, but I, I've kind of broken it down into three things. This is at least the beginning of what a disciple is. He's a student. I made them all S's, so they'll be easy to remember. Everybody say student. Yeah, disciples are constantly learning. In, in the classic use of the word in the, in the New Testament, it means a, a follower of a rabbi, a teacher. You would be that rabbi's disciple. And, and, and you would learn what this rabbi believed about scripture. In Jesus's case, you would learn all of the revolutionary ideas he had about faith and what it was, really was to follow God. And you would learn them and, and then choose them. And you would become a servant. That's the second thing, not just a student, but a servant to your rabbi. A disciple is one who understands what his uh, rabbi thinks, but also chooses to do what his rabbi says to do. This is often a, a, a miss in Christians uh, in the modern age. We're, we're head full and heart empty. We know a lot of stuff, but we're, it's not changing how we live. Uh, Jesus came to be our Lord and our Savior, our boss and our deliverer. So as disciples, we need to be students and servants. And then what I want to talk about today, and I know this is probably not the best word in the age that we're living in, but uh, disciples are supposed to be spreaders. Super spreaders, if I can just go ahead and do it. There it is. But it's true. We've been given this one mission. There's one thing, I've told you before, there's one thing we can do here on earth that we can't do when we get to heaven. And that's share the gospel with people who don't know Jesus. Everything else we'll be able to do better, infinitely better, eternally better, right? Worship, learn about Jesus. I mean, everything in heaven is going to beat out what's going on here on earth, except for the opportunity to make an eternal difference in someone else's life. So the disciple questions for those scoring at home should be these every day. Wake up, what am I learning? This is John Wesley's turn of phrase. How is my doing? I did that on purpose. Not how, are my, how am I doing, but how is my doing? What am I doing with what I know? And then finally, and this is the one that usually gets lost on a disciple's life. Who am I telling? Who am I telling? You're, you're not supposed to keep Jesus a secret. I'm not supposed to hide behind my faith or hide it from others. Today we're going to read the stories of, or, or parts of the stories of, of six of uh, some of the first disciples of, of Jesus we're going to look at uh, one more time, uh, a third week in a row, the life of this guy, John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus. 
Uh, I told you a couple weeks ago that he was the last prophet uh, of the Old Testament, even though we find him in the New Testament. And he's also the first disciple on record of Jesus. He was talking about Jesus before he knew Jesus was Jesus. We're going to hear from him. We're going to hear from an unnamed disciple who, for all accounts, and, and you know, according to most of the scholars that I read, believe to be uh, the writer of this gospel, John. He's not named, but he's a, a partner of a guy named Andrew who is named uh, and we're going to see their story. Andrew's going to go and he's going to talk to his brother Simon. We know him to be Peter, the apostle Peter. Uh, and then uh, we're going to move from where these conversations and initial followings begin. And we're going to head up to Galilee where Jesus is from and where a lot of his early ministry days transpire. And we're going to meet Philip and uh, one of his friends, Nathaniel. And from the brief telling of these six disciples' stories, we're going to learn a couple things today. The first one is this. Is as I've said before and as we maintain in our mission, disciples are meant to point not yet disciples to Jesus. I call people who don't know Jesus not yet disciples because I think that's far more hopeful. Are you with me? I mean, you can, we can refer to them as the lost or those in sin. We're all, you know, kind of lost and absolutely wrecked too much with sin. But, uh, but let's talk about people who don't know you Jesus yet as not yet disciples, shall we? Those of us who know Jesus, it's our mission here on earth to point those who don't know Jesus to him. And then from the stories that we read here, these six stories, we learn that not yet disciples take unique paths on their way to faith. And I want this to be an encouragement to us because what I'm going to do is two things. I'm going to ask you one more time, please, let's together as God's church be ready to share an account of the joy that's within us. Let's be ready, whenever God gives us an opportunity this year, to talk to people about Jesus. But let's do that without fear, without a sense of failure, knowing that everybody's path's gonna be different. I may just be the first person that someone hears about Jesus from. I may be the 21st, the 101st, depending on how hard the heart and head are, right? But my mission my aim as a disciple of Jesus is just to be a spreader. Let me infect you, sorry, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You choose what you're going to do with it. And let me, as I spread, trust in the source, our Savior Jesus. He holds the cards, He makes the appointments. I just need to be faithful. The first thing, disciples point not yet Jesus or not yet disciples to Jesus. It starts with John the Baptist. Look what it says in verse 35. The next day, if you remember, we're kind of walking through seven days, the, not the first week of Jesus' ministry life, but one of the weeks of Jesus' early ministry uh, existence. Uh, and, and it's actually transpiring day by day by day. It's going to end next week. Come next week. Uh, the last day of this week is going to be spent in Cana of Galilee where Jesus is going to make wine. But on this next day, it's the third day in this week, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, behold, the Lamb of God, check it out, right there. I've been talking to you guys for however long I've been talking to you guys about his arrival, that's him. I'm thinking John's pretty excited. And I'm thinking he's doing this, go, go, go follow him. I was never the point. I'm not fit to tie his shoes. He's the point. Go get him. That's all in between the lines there. 
And two disciples, uh, two of his disciples heard him say this, and indeed they followed Jesus. One of those disciples, it tells us in verse 40, uh, was a guy named Andrew. He was Simon Peter's brother. That's how Andrew is always referred to in scripture. Did you know that? How would you like that? Right? I'm Simon Peter's brother. Anyway, he seemed not to mind. Uh, but he, he first found his own brother Simon and he said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Messiah, the Hebrew for anointed one. Christ or Christos, the Greek for anointed one. And what's he do? He brings his brother Simon to Jesus. Go down further in the story, verse 43. We're now in Galilee and Jesus is headed up there. He finds a guy named Philip and he says to him, follow me. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And so Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. They went to high school together. Go Bethsaida Broncos. Anyway, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, uh, uh, and also who the prophets wrote of, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. In a couple verses, we're going to see Philip and Nathaniel come to Christ, and we'll talk about that too. But three times, guys, three times in the span of, I don't know, what is it, 16 verses, we see a different disciple, John the Baptist, Andrew, the brother of Simon and Peter, Simon Peter, not Simon and Peter, and then uh, this guy, Philip. One of the first things they do in their discipleship is go tell someone else. We see this all the time in the Bible. Fast forward in the book of John. This chick, I shouldn't say chick, this woman from a place called Samaria is just minding her own business, trying to get some water, and she meets up with this guy, Jesus, and he starts talking to her. And if you don't know the story, go ahead. I won't be offended. You can read it. It's just a couple chapters ahead. But they get talking, and he, and he finally says, I know everything that I, I need to know about you. And she freaks out. Remember what she does? She sits right down at his feet, and she says, tell me more, tell me more. Is that what she does? I'm testing the crowd if you're scoring from home. That is not what she does. She drops the whole reason she went out to the well for. She drops her jug, and she bolts back into town. And the, and the scriptures tell us that the first thing she does is she just starts rousting everybody. Come here. Everybody, listen to me. You have got to come out to the well in the middle of the day in the desert. There's a guy out there, and he's told me everything that I don't want people to know about myself. Could he be from God? And she, I'm picturing her just grabbing cloaks and robes and hauling people out the city gate and back to where Jesus was. I love the book of Acts when it tells the story of this guy, Saul. He was a real jerk. He, uh, he was a terrorist uh, for the Jewish faith. He, he would go out and he'd find these early converts to Christianity and he'd persecute them, throw them in jail. Sometimes they'd, they'd even end up killing him. He, he held the coats of the men who threw rocks at one of the early deacons, a guy named Stephen. Well, he's walking, you probably know the story to a, uh, to a, an appointment in a, in a place that's now in Syria, Damascus. And he's on the road and Jesus totally comes in contact with him and shines a light so bright on him that his eyes go dark, he can't see. And he asks him why he's persecuting and persecuting him. And, and, and if you know the story, this, this, this Saul um, comes to Christ in this miraculous way. He stumbles into town. He's, he's met by a, a, an early follower named Ananias, and, and, and they basically forge this relationship. But over the, over the first few days of his coming to, to faith in Jesus Christ, it tells us that this, this Saul, who would become Paul, 
went into the synagogue. This is Acts 9.20. He, he went into the synagogue and it says immediately, like as quick as he could, he started telling other people about this Jesus that he had found. You might grow up Methodist. Some of you did. Uh, the founder of the Methodist uh, wasn't a denomination when he started it, but his name was uh, John Wesley. And Wesley kind of got groups of Anglicans in the early uh, church in England, and he, he got them together and he said, you know, let's really start holding each other accountable. And, and he created these methods uh, that kind of is behind the name Methodist. But he, he, he got people together in, in early forms of small groups. And when people would come to Christ, he would take these new converts. You know what his first discipleship move was? It wasn't, here's the gospel of John, although that's a great, great play. It wasn't, hey, let's sit down and have eight weeks together and I'll teach you how to pray and, 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 we'll, and, and those are great things. If you're in a discipleship relationship, those are crucial points of the Christian faith. But you know what the, one of the first things is that John Wesley made a new convert do? We're gonna go down to the corner in the town where you found Jesus Christ and you're just gonna start telling anybody who will listen how you came to faith in Jesus. Because he's like, that's what disciples do. Disciples talk to not yet disciples about the joy that's within them, the Jesus that they found. It's the most natural thing in the world. And yet, in our day and age, it's one of the things that often gets left out of our discipleship. The first disciples were super busy pointing those around them away from themselves and towards their Savior, Jesus. The question is, is are we? Are we taking this life-changing, life-giving news that we have been blessed to receive by God's grace, and are we seeing it as this thing that other people need, that they are dying without? One of my favorite movies from my uh, college years kind of portrays this in a humorous way. Everybody... Take a look at the screens. <laughs> okay, kind of silly. Funnier than I uh, when I remembered it. But anyway, uh, 
You remember the story of the, the three servants who were each given an investment by the master? And, and some had more and, you know, one had more than the second and the second had more than the one. But, but the, the two did something with what they'd been given. And, and the one just buried what he'd been given by the master in his yard. Never shared it with anybody. Never invested it for his master. I, I, as I was watching that clip, I was just thinking, um, that's what we do. If, if we don't seek to actively tell the not yet disciples in our world who Jesus is, you know, some of you are already, you know, Satan's throwing up the, the flags already. Well, I can't do that, Mark. It, it'll affect my job. It'll, you know, my family will disown me. What, I mean, we're, we're already starting to do those things, but but in a, in a sense, we're holding this living water that's been given to us and we're withholding it from the other people around us who need to drink. You know, my prayer this year is that each one of us would have an opportunity at least once to share some form of the gospel, to point somebody in some way to Jesus in the relationships that he's given us. Now, I, I want to say that uh, and make clear that I'm not saying that you have to close the deal. We're going to talk about that in a second. Jesus is the one who saves, not us. We just have to be willing to talk, to speak up, to point. We can trust Jesus to do the rest. But my prayer is that everybody here would have the chance to point someone to Christ. Now, when we have those opportunities, we need to understand this, that not yet disciples often take unique paths to faith even in the, the telling of these stories, we see some different um, things going on. These, these first two disciples, who we, the, the unnamed one who we think is John and, and, and Andrew, let's talk about their story. These, verse 37, again, in John chapter 1, the two disciples heard him say this, uh, <clears throat> John the Baptist saying, behold the lamb. And they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, hey, what are you seeking? These are the first red letters in the gospel of John. These are the first words recorded by John in his telling of Jesus' story. What a great ask to begin with. What a great question to kind of have as, as Jesus' opening line. Because basically what he's asking the whole world, what do you want? What are you seeking? What are you hitching your wagon to? Andrew and probably John said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? I used to kind of wonder what this was all about. I used to think it's because they couldn't really you know, say what they wanted to ask. They were just like, uh, where are you staying? But this is, a, this is a very relational question. They'd basically been pointed by their last rabbi, John the Baptist, to this new rabbi. And they're like, hey, we've been told all along that we've got to get ready to follow you. Um, can we start? Like maybe, can you tell us where you're staying? And, and maybe could you open up your iPhone and just kind of, you know, put us in as a, an appointment? Uh, we'll, we'll meet you there at some time and we can just kind of get to know each other. Is that cool? And see what Jesus says? He says, yeah, man. Come and you will see. Jesus says that to the whole world. He said it to you and me. At some point, we may have been very young and trusted Christ as, you know, we grew up in our family's Christian home. Or we may have come, like many of my friends, much later in life. And Jesus, in that process, said, hey, man, come and see. Come and check this out. I'll show you who I am. I'll lead you to faith. So it says in verse 39 that they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. The 10th hour in, in the Jewish clock is about four o'clock in the afternoon. Clock starts at six in the morning. 
So maybe it was just right before dinner, and Jesus was like, yeah, I'm staying right over here. Come and have dinner. Let's get to know each other. Let's talk. Let's hang out. I'll answer your questions. You probably got a bunch. And he begins the process of their discipleship. Takes time for some people to come around to faith. This is probably is an old statistic, but about 25 years ago, it took about 7.5 exposures to the gospel before someone put their faith in Christ, on average. I don't know what it is now, but here's the deal. Some people just need to soak in this. And, and here's the other deal. Some people grow up in this and decide it's not for them. Anybody know those people? I raised a couple. And they kind of step away from the faith. And what God wants from us as their friends is to trust Jesus with their timing. Because just like in physical birth, spiritual birth, sometimes takes some time, right? Like I, I, Eleanor would, uh, for, I remember when we found out she was pregnant with Ben, she came to me and said, we're pregnant with Ben. I was like, great, how long do I have before I'm a father? Because I got to get ready. I have no idea what I'm doing. And so she figured it out, and we kind of set a due date with a doctor, and, and we didn't worry as much about three months before his due date or two months before because we figured this is how this works with humans. He's going to come around here. I wonder if that's not the case, certainly, uh, with God's perspective in your friend's life. We get all fussed out. Hey, man, I shared the gospel. Come on. Get Christian already. Let's do this. And they're like, eh, I'm thinking about it. I'll let you keep talking to me, but I'm just not there. But God knows. And God invites, just as Jesus did, come and see. He also encourages those that are being shared with, with pictures of what might be. Look at what it says in verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak John the Baptist, and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought Simon to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. And then Jesus speaks this prophecy over this fisherman that he's just met. You know what? We're going to call you Rocky from now on. That's actually what the translation of Cephas or Petra, Peter, means. It means the rock. And if you know the story of Peter a little bit, he's not the rock right away. He kind of stumbles his way into becoming his name. Uh, even after he has the early successes of Acts and his preaching at Pentecost, he kind of blows it. Anybody relate to Peter, right? Yeah, I can. But Jesus, on, on seeing this fresh disciple, says, you know what? I see great things in store for you. And that should be an encouragement for us as we talk to people. We may think, lost cause, there's nothing, there's nothing here. There's no way God can use, but God sees who he can make us to be. As we keep going, we're, we're going to realize, not, not just here, but in lots of places in Scripture, that all not yet disciples are called by Jesus. He's the one who saves. Everybody gets that, right? Sometimes I'll talk with people who are so excited to have had the opportunity to share their faith and they'll say, I got to save so-and-so. And I'm like, no, you didn't. I love you and I, I love that you were a part of that, but none of us can save anybody. 
Jesus not only saves those uh, who come into faith uh, with him, but, but he is the one who calls those, all of us who are in faith, to himself. Look what it says in verse 43. Uh, I think John puts this in here uh, very pointedly. He says, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. So Simon's in, Andrew's in, John, the writer of the gospel's in. And he, he finds Philip. And all it says about the conversion of Philip is that Jesus went up to Phil and he said, you, with me, let's go. That was it. And Philip followed Jesus. Jesus does the finding. If we read the expanded versions of the conversion of these first disciples in the other gospels, we'll see that he did the same thing with them. I'm not going to read the verses, but in Matthew chapter 4, Peter and uh, his brother Andrew are, are you know, helping their dad fish, and Jesus comes up to him and says what? Follow me and I'll make you what? Fishers of men. And what's it say they did? Nets. All right, off we go. They go down the shore a little bit later, and, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, are doing the same thing. He says the same things to them. And what do they do? The same thing that Pete and Andrew did. Drops everything and follows Jesus. All at the behest, at the call of our Savior. Now listen, there's not enough time right now to litigate, negotiate, and debate how much God chooses us and how much we choose him. Depending on where you grew up, you emphasize one over the other if you grew up in the faith. Here's what I know. The answer to the question, who chooses, us or God, is yes. And if I'm going to fall on one side of this thing, I'm going to fall on the side of the omnipotent, all-knowing God. He's the chooser. It says as much in John chapter 15 where Jesus says this as he talks to us in terms of vine and branches. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. This is such great news for those of us who are given this mission of being the disciples who tell not, the not yet disciples about Jesus. It takes all the pressure off. I can just relax and trust. I can just be a loving and truthful uh, engager of this person. Point them to Jesus and trust that Jesus will lead them home. This is great news for us Christian parents who have kids out on the, off the ranch. We can just share the truth in love and trust Jesus to call them home. For all of us, we can look at those in our lives and like John Wesley said to his early followers in Methodism, he says, do all the good you can by all the means you can and all the ways you can and all the places you can and all the times you can to all the people you can as long as ever you can. Just, just go and be faithful and trust me with the results. we close, I want to just encourage you with one more story and let you know that Jesus has his ways of reaching even the most skeptical, skeptical, not yet disciples. As we journey north to Galilee with Jesus here in the first chapter of John, uh, we see again the story of Philip. He was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, and, and Philip found Nathanael, it says in verse 45, and he says to his buddy Nathanael, we have found him of whom... Uh, Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Does anybody remember how Nathaniel responded to this? I'll tell you, it's in the next verse. Here it comes. Nathaniel says this to his friend Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip says to him, well, come and see. That's, that's, that's coming strong. Is everybody feeling Nathaniel there? He's coming strong. He's basically saying, Philip, false. 
Not. I don't know who you met, but he's not the Messiah. I used to think it was because he had something against Nazareth. Maybe it was a high school rivalry, you know, Bethsaida played them in football, right? I don't know. That's not true. Maybe it's because Nazareth was like the armpit of Israel. There's no evidence for that. It's probably just tied to the fact that Nathaniel was a, a very pious Jew. He, he knew his scriptures, and he knew that Micah 6, verse 2 says that the Messiah is going to come from a place called Bethlehem. Now, uh, that got buried in the telling of Philip's you know, story. He didn't say, maybe he didn't even know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He just met this guy. He's from Nazareth. He's trying to tell his buddy Nathaniel about him, and Nathaniel's like, well, no, dummy. He can't be the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. And so Nathaniel goes with Philip to see Jesus, and he's probably got that same attitude, not him. Not him. Anybody got that, friend? Tells you that your faith is just this psychological crutch. You know, this, uh, this belief in nothing. God's not real. Yeah, Nathaniel wasn't all the way there, but, but he certainly was doubting that Jesus was who Jesus is. Now the story goes on that Nathaniel and Philip are com uh, coming up to Jesus in verse 47. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said to him, hey, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Now, if you're not Jewish uh, and you weren't growing up then, uh, you probably wouldn't pick up what Jesus was putting down. But it makes total sense if you're a, a Jew for Jesus to kind of make this play on words. He calls Nathaniel an Israelite. Israel is another name for a guy named Jacob. And Jacob uh, was a deceiver. He basically cheated his brother out of his birthright, Esau. He fooled his dad into giving it to him. He was a liar through and through. And so what Jesus is saying about Nathan is, hey, here comes a guy from Jacob who's nothing like Jacob because he doesn't deceive. He knew something about Nathaniel's character. And he was, you know, quick with this compliment Nathaniel asks him, he says, hey, how do you know me? Like, thanks, but how do you know me? And Jesus says this to him, Philip, or excuse me, before Philip called you, Nathaniel, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Everybody knows that story, right? No, you don't. No one knows that story. No one knows what happened under the fig tree. Wouldn't you like to? The best explanation I've been given is that Nathaniel, you know, being this understander of scripture, uh, was either being uh, tutored by a, a rabbi where rabbis would meet with their students under fig trees. Or maybe he was just reflecting, uh, perhaps even about Genesis and the story of Jacob underneath this fig tree, and Jesus kind of wove it all together. I like that one. Whatever the case, Nathaniel says, man, there's something about this guy, just like the woman at the well, there's something about this guy. And so he makes this proclamation. He says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. He went from like zero to a hundred in belief. He says, you're the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him and said, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? Awesome. That's nothing. He says, you will see greater things than these. And he said to them, or said to him, this is really interesting. You can't tell in the English, but he switches from singular to plural here. So basically, the, the sense of what he's saying is, is, is something that John is saying to all of his readers. He says this, I say, truly, truly, that's amen, amen. You ever say amen in church? 
Jesus used to say it all the time. He just said it in front of the things that he said. Amen, amen. I say to you, you will see the heavens opened. That's basically, I say to all y'all, it's Texan. I say to all y'all that all y'all will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Again, we're back in the story of Jacob. Anybody remember that story? He's out in the wilderness. He's running from his brother Esau. He falls asleep. And in his dream, he sees in his dream this stairway to heaven, Zeppelin. And he, he sees uh, these angels coming up and down the stairway as God's messengers to him and to his descendants. And he understands that this is a holy place. He, he wakes up and he names it Bethel, the house of God. And he goes on later in his own faith story to become Israel, the prince of God, the, 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 the chosen one of God. And, he, and he, he reverses himself. He goes from being deceived and a deceiver to being someone who understood God and knew him. And Jesus plays off of that and he says, you know what? You think me seeing you under a fig tree is cool. How about this? You stick with me and I'm going to show you the heavens opening and the angels of God ascending and descending on who? Who's the stairway between heaven and earth? Jesus says, it's me. If you want to know God, you got to know me. I'm his messenger. I'm his message. If you want to have a relationship with God, it comes through me, the way, the truth, and the life. No one else can lead you to him. It's me. And we who have understood this by faith have received Jesus as our Savior. And now we're given this mission to tell all the other not yet disciples this great news. And so I come to the end of my time with you today. And I got two things. One, I know many of you are sitting here. I've seen you before. I know many of you love you. You're with me as, as already disciples of Jesus. Can I encourage you to be spiritually sensitive today, this week? Maybe it's even going to be at the Super Bowl party where God's just going to, he's going to toe open the door in a conversation with someone from your family who doesn't know Jesus, someone from your friend group who doesn't know Jesus. And you're going to get to, in a very small way, between plays, start the conversation. Just be ready. Don't put a lot of pressure on yourself. Don't let Satan pull you off. Travis was talking about that. Don't let Satan pull you off. Just stay the course and be faithful and then trust that Jesus, who is the saver of men's souls, will take care of the rest. Here's the last thing. I get up here every week. I preach to you guys. And then I close the service with a song. My sweet sister, Darnisha, gets up here and leads us. And, and most weeks, I don't, you know, I, I tell you, you can come and talk to me, but I don't, I don't give an invitation to people who might be sitting here right now who don't know Jesus and need to know him. If that's you, I'm talking to you. Man, I'm so grateful if you're watching online or if you're here in the room or next door that you've been hanging out with us. But here's why you've been hanging out with us. It's because God made you for himself. Sin has separated you from him. The only way you can be rejoined to him is through faith in Jesus Christ. You have to go from being a not yet disciple to a full-blown spreader just like the rest of us. You've got to put your faith in Jesus and in him alone to save you from your sins. Admit, admit you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus is your savior. Commit your life to him. That's the message of his church. And if I haven't given you the opportunity to respond to that, well, shame on pastor. I'm going to give you that opportunity today. We're going to sing this song, Amazing Grace, written by a 
an amazing sinner named John Newton who came amazingly to Jesus after a really hard life. Maybe that's you. You can respond to the grace that God has given you in Jesus Christ right now. You can walk this aisle. I know it's not our thing. It's not what we do. You're like, wait a minute. I thought this was a safe church. Normally it is. Maybe to our detriment, but not today. If you're supposed to meet Jesus today, I want you to come down here. I'll step off the stage. She can pray at the end. I'll tell you about Jesus right over there, and you can know him for the first time today. Clear? Let's stand and sing.